Welcome to Greenwood Forest, a podcast for people who are tired of hearing that everything happens for a reason. It's good to be here today. Uh, I'm Stephen Stacks. Around the table with me, we have Lauren Eford. Hey, Stephen. Wes Spears Newsom. Hi, Stephen. And Kadisha Bonsu. Hi, Stephen. All right, so we're here to talk about uh, the sermon series from Job that we just finished and the meaning of life and suffering. So is everybody ready to, uh, to answer all the questions? Oh, yeah. All right. So in the first sermon in the series, Lauren, uh, you talked about how the book of Job is a challenge to the theory of divine retribution, which says that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Despite the fact that we have this beautiful book that completely deconstructed this idea 2,500 years ago, this theory still persists in our culture. Why do you think people cling to this idea? Well, it would be really nice if we could have some sort of control over our lives, wouldn't it? Um, I think the world is chaotic, and we want to make some sort of sense out of it um, in order to make it through the day sometimes. Um, so it would be really comforting if we could put things into those categories so we could figure out what was happening and understand ourselves and understand God. Um, and unfortunately, that's not true, as the book of Job testifies. Yeah, I mean, I think it all comes down to predictability. Like if there's some formula for life where you, you input, input good thing, good thing happens, input bad thing, bad thing happens. Mm-hmm. Like, that would be easy. Um, but life isn't that easy. I think it, it, you know, to deny this means also that we have to acknowledge our fragility mm-hmm. and that we really can't protect ourselves or the people we love. And that's really scary to think about. I would say universally. I think people, pretty much human beings are scared of that. <laughs> and there's probably no way around it. Well, and it's hard to live in a place of vulnerability all the time, right? You have to learn to navigate the world being that vulnerable. And sometimes you do make it through the day by pretending that we're not that fragile. Mm-hmm. And, but also lots of bad things happen by pretending that we're not fragile and that we can protect ourselves. Uh, a lot of our, we don't have to get into this now, but a lot of our national policies are based on the fact that we can protect ourselves from all the things all that, that we think threaten us. Mm-hmm. And that actually ends up in a lot of evil and a lot of bad things happening to people because we think we can protect ourselves from everything. I can even think about that from a medical perspective, too, what mm. the medical institutions in our country are like. And we pretend that we're not fragile and that we, don't, we shouldn't suffer and we pump people full of uh, morphine at the end of their lives um, in order for them not to ever feel anything, right? And sometimes people experience death, uh, suffering in their dying process that they wouldn't have even experienced had they not tried so hard to pretend that they weren't mortal. Um, it's no coincidence that uh, you know, dust and ashes comes up in the book of Job and that's what we remind ourselves on Ash Wednesday. Try to remember. Okay, so Kate Bowler wrote the memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, on which uh, this sermon series was based. So in the first um, sermon, Lauren, you also included a passage from her book that ends with this statement. 
I can't reconcile the way that the world is jolted by events that are wonderful and terrible, the gorgeous and the tragic, except I am beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. These opposites do not cancel each other out. Does anyone have any reflections on that profound thought? And I think we talk a lot about these beliefs we have um, that we try to put in place about suffering and are, are there so that we can have some illusion of control. Um, and when we try to be so controlling, it's not just that we can um, be overwhelmed by suffering when it comes, but if we're trying to control everything, we can also miss um, the beautiful things that could happen if we just let go a little bit more. If we're trying to control the way other people are in our life, like whether there are children, spouses, relatives, we can miss who God made them to be and all of the the wonderful surprises that come with that. Um, that that life is will surprise us both ways. Mm. Um, not just in tragedy but also in beauty well I think it means that um, like we have to live life in the tension and I think that that's hard to do because we might have preconceived notions or hopes or desires about which side like I think in, in our culture we often get wrapped up in like binaries a lot mm. and so maybe good versus bad, beautiful versus hard, or like she says here, life is so beautiful, life is so hard, but so I think our tendency is to gravitate towards one pole or the other, but really and at certain stages you may gravitate towards one or the other, but it doesn't mean that the other doesn't exist just because you're on one side like it, like, like she's saying that they don't cancel each other out and so I think the difficulty is us realizing that it's okay to be in attention and that we don't have to somehow reconcile them and that recon- reconciling them means making one of them absent. Mm-hmm. What if reconciling them means learning how to, just simply learning how to live in attention of they both exist mm-hmm. and I can hold both of these things together. At the same time and sometimes in the same breath. Yes. <laughs> everything that is beautiful also probably has hard aspects to it and vice versa, which I think is, you know, that, that comment about binaries is really important, I think, is that we, we like to think of every, every experience as one of these things or the other. Mm-hmm. And I think what Kate Bowler's book does really well is speak beautifully about hard things um, and help us to see that, you know, both, that everything that happens to us is a mixture of beauty and difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, I think marriage is a perfect example of this. You know, mm-hmm. Ma- marriage is hard. Marriage is beautiful. The difficulty of it sometimes is what makes it beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, and vice versa. So I think I think that's that's like a the truth at the heart of this. You know, you can't erase the hardness because when you erase that, maybe you erase beauty at the same time they they coexist I can't also not think about childbirth when you say that Mm -hmm. Um, and like what it means to bring a child into the world and the feeling of how hard certainly the hardest uh, most 
pain I've ever been in in my life, but also the most beautiful uh, moment that I've ever experienced in bringing two children into the world, right? Um, and I, I mean, I think about this, that quote a lot from the perspective of being a parent. Um, and I think it's interesting, a lot of people try to do what you're saying in the binary, like, you know, they don't want to hear how hard it can be to raise small children, right? Well, children are a blessing and uh, you need to enjoy it, uh, you know, making young parents feel guilty. Well, you need to enjoy this time, you know, they grow up so fast and you don't understand how great this is. Yes, it's beautiful and it's also incredibly hard yeah. and challenging uh, to parent a child. Um, and to parent a small child, right, and all the different ups and downs that come come with that. And for Kate, right, in the middle of her bringing a child into the world, um, that was a beautiful experience for her. Um, but alongside of that, she was also learning that she had a terminal diagnosis, right? Um, so the beauty and the and the tragedy coexist. Yeah. Another example of this, or that feels salient for me, um, like the the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen that kind of holds this tension is um, during my time spent in Ghana, like during their funerals, um, they're grieving because someone has died mm -hmm. and you can see them weeping. Um, and sometimes that's dependent on the age of the person and the circumstance under which they died, but they're also celebrating the fact that this person is entering eternal life and so and and that they have in celebrating the life of the person so they drum like they'll be driving down the street drumming through town like a parade with like as they process with the body and they dance and like one time I, I literally saw someone dancing while crying mm -hmm. and to me that was like a beautiful image of like yeah this really hard thing is happening and I'm weeping but I'm also dancing, and these they don't cancel each other out. And obviously, we see that tradition like in African diasporic places, like the Black Church, etc. But I think that's also another example of like hope living in that tension. Yeah, I wonder too if the hard part of that. I think it's easier said to say live in the tension than it is to do. But I wonder if the hard part of it is that it feels and sounds confusing, and we don't like confusing. We don't like discomfort. And I think it, it makes it hard for us to name it. So if you can't name it or put language to like the mixed feelings and the mixed emotions that you're having, then what is that, right? Like you have a harder time put, grasping it. And so I feel like it's the discomfort of it all that makes it like hard to live into the tension. Mm -hmm. You're also making me think about how different that is from like our cultures trends now as baby boomers age and how they want to have celebrations of life and not funerals and the request to uh, not say anything sad we don't want this to be sad uh, we don't want there to be people to be crying we don't want people to be feeling uncomfortable right and that's a going on the whole other end of the spectrum of yeah. wanting to not live in the tension either because it's wanting to focus on happy, clappy, joy, uh, gratitude yes, um, but not acknowledging the real pain and loss um, is another refusal, I think, to live in that moment. Seems an attempt to erase the difficulty while holding up the beauty rather than holding them together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we don't want the difficulty. We just want the beauty. But really, if you, you try to get Erasing rid of one, you, the, you know, the other is, is hard to come by. I think a, a related question comes up uh, in the second sermon, which is uh, where we wrestled with God's response to Job out of the whirlwind. And the crucial question in that sermon, which came from Ellen Davis, I believe, is can you love what you cannot control? 
which is a hard question to answer, but does anybody have an insight or a story about that thought? That's certainly what I would go back to your marriage comment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or the children there, comment. or the children <laughs> comment for sure, right? Um, and because it's where you really learn it in your real life, right? The people who um, are the closest to you, and what happens when they become people that you um, didn't want them to become, or make decisions that you didn't want them to make. Um, can you love them in spite of that because they look like themselves and they don't look like you? Um, what does that mean, right? I think you really get to the crux of that uh, with the people who are in your in your space um, every day of your life, and how do you how do you love and not control? And then you know the other question we were talking about at some point too in the sermon was, um, is it love if you can control it? Um, mm-hmm. Is it truly love then? Yeah, I mean I think that this gets to the crux of what all. Um, what our entire faith certainly is is about, which is learning to love the other, the neighbor, not you, right? As yourself. Lo- yep. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, because you know, our tradition understands that it's it's easy to love yourself, and when all you're doing is loving something you can't control, it's really just a projection of yourself. Mm-hmm. But the trick is learning how to love what you can't control, the neighbor, the other, what you don't understand necessarily, because it's not you. Mm-hmm. All we can truly understand is our, our, our own self, and so the only way to truly approach the other is from a lack of control and a lack of understanding and still learning to love in the midst of that, is the, that's the trick. Making me think about the fear that we have around people that are not like us that we can't control and our how we are maybe don't understand, um, and the national conversation happening right now and the fear around migrant caravans, right? And mm-hmm. thinking about those folks and why why would they come over here and uh, what does that mean and um, can we imagine <laughs> why someone might leave everything that they've known and march and come knowing that they may get locked up the moment they cross our border? Can we imagine their reality? Can we imagine uh, what it would be like to be them? Can we love them even though we don't understand it? Um, And I would probably argue that the answer is no, we can't imagine it. Mm -hmm. That true, like, true empathy is impossible. Right. In the sense that one cannot fully put oneself in somebody else's shoes. However, our, our faith calls us to love regardless, mm-hmm. to figure out what it means that we can't truly understand another person, but our job, if we want to be faithful, is to love them like we, as we love ourselves. And I think, you know, a lot of the kind of xenophobic and racist uh, tendencies that are on display in our national life right now are because it's a lot easier to love what you see of yourself in someone else. Mm -hmm. So white folk find it easier to love other white folk because they see themselves in other white folk. And so really they just love themselves. I find that extremely interesting. (laughs) I don't know where I'm going with this point, but I find... (laughs) That I think that's true, that it's easier to love 
when we see ourselves in it. But for you to say, like, um, white people find it easier to love other white people because they see them, like, that parallels their experience, I find that particularly interesting because I think for centuries, maybe not centuries, for years, white people have asked blacks in this country, specifically in, if we think about slave religion, to love a white God. And so, I don't know, I, I think that thinking about religion and thinking about conversion, etc., I don't know, I find that extremely interesting. I know some of that might be like assimilation or like, I don't really know, but I find that thought interesting. Like you, you, want, you yourself want to love what looks like you. But you're gonna ask and require of other people to love what doesn't, what does not resonate with their experience. It's it's why that's oppression, yes, but it's still it just it's bewildering. I think it's why slaveholder religion produces unfaithfulness, mm-hmm. and why, uh, you know, we're I, this is this is a tricky. Th- let me figure out how to articulate this well. But I think that. The, the black church in America shows us the most faithful example of what the church can and should be. And I think, let me phrase it negatively, I think it's because the white church has not, has, has always had a white God and hasn't had to learn how to love the other actually. Mm-hmm. Has never asked itself to do that, really. So you're saying basically that the black church has learned how to love well because they've had to love at the margins? Yes. That's a good way to put it. Which, the reason I say it's tricky is because it's bordering on on what we're going to get to in a minute, which is uh, all things work together for good. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we've gotten to, to the real meaning of that passage just now. Um, but I think... Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, I, what, I, what I would not do is say, thank you, white church, for making the black church love a white God and therefore be actually right. Christian. <laughs> I think that's the wrong way to put it. But what I, what I would say is that the black church has learned to be church in my, I mean, kind of objectively better than the white church, I think, in, mm. in this country. So Pastor Lauren talked in one of her sermons about um, at the end when Job uh, gets twice as much as he had before uh, that he's not simply getting back what he lost but a completely he's getting a completely new stance on life I think that kind of fits into that thought um, in that you just clarified that it's not that we're saying like the black church had to happen or as Dr. Marshall Terman might say the black church doesn't exist because it wanted to it exists because it had to mm-hmm. like we're not saying that is getting it had to do that because or or you know that it's getting back this thing be, you know that it's what am I trying to say that it's uh Inevitable I guess or, or retri- retributive if that is a word I don't know or that that's the good that came out of the the bad or ugly situation right we're saying that in spite of that bad situation they got to learn not learn, they, in spite of that bad situation, they have a new way of doing, yes. of loving and living as a church. Right. Yeah. The Spirit still showed up and worked, worked it out. 
Because, I mean, I think this gets to, like, a, a core aspect of Scripture and how Scripture talks about God and suffering is that we so often want to understand the machinations of how God works. We want to right. know, like, how it works um, in the background when Scripture speaks so much more of God's presence than how God actually works. Mm-hmm. Like, Scripture talks about where God is. Um, not what God is doing or the intentions behind yes yes. so when we talk about God and suffering God is not like some puppet master behind the curtain pulling these little strings making little things happening that's not the picture that scripture presents scripture presents a God who will despite being the creator of all that is and the supreme being in the entire universe will still come Mm -hmm. and talk to Job like, even if God's still kind of correcting Job and his friends, God will still be present with Job. And, like, the incarnation in Jesus is, like, the most <laughs> profound example of that, that the answer to suffering for God was not to take control over the whole world and, like, force everything to be better, um, like, but it was to come. To, to in flesh, be in solidarity, and be vulnerable yeah. in solidarity with with creation. So that makes me think about when we asked why we think if if this is the case and we know all these things, why do people hold to these ideologies or these theories or the theory of like divine retribution? And I have no clue if this impetus is right or not, but it makes me. It almost makes me think about the concept of like original sin in Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think it's the same. I think we are repeating the same thing, essentially, that we we want to be all knowing or and maybe that wasn't their motive, but that we we want to figure it out. We want to be able to articulate and do as God does. Um, And I think that that's the what makes it sinful for us to and dare, I mean dare I say that like most people maybe don't view this idea as being sinful for us to want to figure it out or to um, say that all things are going to work for good or um, make, basically how we make meaning of it. I would say that some of the ways that we make meaning of our suffering are, actual, are actually not just incorrect but also sinful mm-hmm. and I think in terms of motive and why we why are we trying to make so much sense of it? I know it might be human inclination, but I also think that some of it is sinful. Mm-hmm. When God came back out of the whirlwind and told Job's friends, you have spoken about me wrongly, mm-hmm. right? That's sinful to speak about me in this way and to pretend that you are all-knowing. Right. Yeah. That was much better said, yeah. There was, there was a, um, a, a scientist and doctor turned priest who was a mentor of mine in college, who um, had gone through, like, an exceptional amount of suffering in his life. Um, And he was trying to write a book about theodicy, the idea that how do you explain suffering? That's what theodicy is, trying to explain suffering. Um, And when he kind of got to the end of figuring out what he was talking about, he said that theodicy, trying to explain suffering in God, was always trying to do what he called save the phenomena. 
and save the phenomena is like um, from the history of science, mm. a term that um, talks about how, like with Galileo and Copernicus, the other scientists who figured out that you know the Earth wasn't the center of the universe and that it actually revolved around other stuff, um, that all these people tried to create other explanations mm-hmm. um, that saved the phenomena of the Earth being at the center, but explained all of the new things scientists had found out. Mm-hmm. And like so much of theodicy and trying to explain suffering is trying to preserve a picture of God that we have, trying to save a phenomena of God that we have that usually is just not true. Um, But we still believe these things because we need an explanation to save the picture of God that we've always had rather than letting our faith evolve and change and and get closer to the the God who lives, um, not just the God who's described on paper. Yeah, so this is that, that like, perfectly gets at the quote, Lauren, that you used... um, in this second sermon from the Jewish theologian, uh, Mari Tiahu Tzivat, um, that the God who speaks to Job here is neither a just God nor an unjust God, but God. Um, it's that, you know, we have these conceptions of God, these boxes that we, you know, try to put God in, and what, what, the, what God speaking out of the whirlwind does is explode them <laughs> and say, you think you're the center of the universe, you're not. Mm-hmm. Which is really hard for human beings to hear, and we've tried to deny it for our entire existence mm-hmm. <laughs> by explaining away everything we've figured out about the world and, and the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, but Job figured, the writer of Job figured it out a long time ago. Mm-hmm. It's like you're saying we want, basically that we want God on our terms. Mm-hmm. Which gets back to the can you love what you can't control and what you don't understand. Can you love God if you're not willing to let God be God? Mm -hmm. Which I think is really, you know, that's a challenging thought for liberals and progressives, Mm -hmm. for, for theological liberals to understand is that you don't get to decide who God is and how God acts before you love God. What liberals want to do is say, I don't love a God who, who would, you know, let's say, drown the Egyptians in the sea. I can't love that God. So I construct a box. Um, And this God I can handle this God who is like a nice, warm, fuzzy God who, you know, confirms all of my biases, et cetera, et cetera. So like, this is a thought that challenges, you know, regardless of your kind of theological stance it's challenging to figure out how do we love God if we don't get to decide who God is and, and the way God acts mm-hmm. in, in the world and actually also reminds me of Wes's infamous prayers of the people when we say God bring your your justice and your judgment um, <laughs> and thinking about you know we want to decide how God brings both justice and judgment but really we have to leave that up yeah. to God yeah, that ultimately to pray for God's judgment is to yield control to God. Like we, we assume there's so much like kind of freight and baggage with that that we assume that somebody's like trying to condemn somebody with that. But it's mm-hmm. actually to say, no, don't let me be judged, but let God be judged. Because 
it doesn't matter what I might conceive as just or unjust because ultimately that's up to God. Yeah, and the, and the idea is not that you can't have thoughts about that. This is what the imprecatory psalms are doing. They're saying, this injustice has happened to me and I'm angry about it and I want you to do something about it, God. But I don't get to decide. Right. God dashed their babies right. against the rocks. God, please. I'm angry. Save me. God do this, right. but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. So it's actually a profoundly nonviolent response to the wrongs of the world to say, God, bring your justice and your judgment on this person and this person and this person who have done these awful things. Um, and it's the, it's the exact opposite of being judgmental as people like to characterize that as, but actually what you're saying is I'm not judge. This wrong has been committed and I'm asking God to be judge. Um, and, you know, the only person being judgmental here is the one who's saying that I'm being judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> who has decided that it's wrong to pray right? Mm-hmm. and to ask God to do things. Mm-hmm. Decided what it means for God to be just. Mm-hmm. So I would like to know y'all's thoughts about this. Um, I think the book of Job, for me, some things that, something that I kind of got from it too is that there are some things that we should leave God out of. Not in the sense of leave God, let me clarify. So when I say we need to leave God out of some things, Job's friends tried to explain his situation by saying it's because you sinned or it's because you did this or they brought God into the picture uh, they brought God into Job's suffering and tried to make uh, an argument that either was caused by God for this reason or that reason or blah 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 the list goes on and so I say from that for me I kind of take away that in the part where we say that in the end, God, God says, you know, you've darkened my counsel. Like, who is this that's darkened my counsel? Like, this is like, you think you know me mm-hmm. and you think this is what I was doing. But that's that's actually that has nothing to do with it. So I say when I say there are some things we should leave God out of, I think sometimes we try to make sense of things by narrating our experience through the lens of like this happened because God is doing this when in actuality it happened because it's I think it happened because it's evil and not because it's evil it it happened and it's evil and it hurts Mm -hmm. and not and I think sometimes we ought to stop there rather than to say Mm -hmm. to people in in, in an effort to comfort or to calm that God is in this in this way does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's, I think it's almost impossible for human beings to get right when they say, God is in this in this way. That, that's, a, that's a very, I would, I would say you pro- probably go ahead and stop. Because if you're, if you're in the middle of something trying to say, God is, God is doing this, you right. probably don't understand what you're talking about. And I, I think it, you know, what you just said about it's evil and maybe just stop there. Um, makes me think of the Carol Newsom quote that you, that you right. brought into one of the sermons where it's like when we're trying to explain away suffering by saying it's you know doing this other thing, it's working for a greater good, it's actually a form of denying that that suffering is real and that it's evil. Um, by saying that, oh, it just appears to be evil, mm-hmm. but actually it's good. And here's why it's good. You're just denying that suffering exists and that evil exists in the world um, when we should just let it be and then try to find God in the midst of it. Well, I think I even have a hard time sometimes when I t- 
talk to folks because the one thing that I want to claim and that I think we can claim, right, is that God is in the midst of it, that God is here, that God is present, that God comes alongside, God sits on the ash sheet. But sometimes I even there find a tension with saying that because when you feel like God isn't there mm. and your pastor says over and over and again, God is here, then I almost in some sense feel like I'm invalidating their response, which is when I think sometimes we have to move to, okay, I believe God is here with you, and but if you feel abandoned by God, you're in good company, right? Mm. Because Jesus also mm. experienced that, right? And cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and that Jesus can relate to feeling abandoned by God. And if Jesus can say that, then we can say it too. Amen. Sounds like a good place to end. This has been Grim and Forest. See you next time.